0: Hello, I'm Garni Barkadarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting-edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org/slash membership podcast today.
1: Okay, welcome to the CNS Journal Club podcast. My name is Hayden Hoffman, and I'm an incoming cerebrovascular and endovascular neurosurgery fellow at Memphis, Tennessee. It is my pleasure to moderate today's discussion regarding the recent neurosurgery article titled Neoadjuvant Arterial Embolization of Spine Metastases." associated with improved local control in patients receiving surgical decompression and stereotactic body radiotherapy i chose this article because i think it has important implications for both the fields of spinal oncology and endovascular neurosurgery and may hopefully expand the role of of preoperative embolization of spinal tumors beyond just reducing interoperative blood loss but i will let the authors explain this in their own words I'm joined by the article's first author, Dr. Mark DeMonte, as well as the senior author, Dr. Brad Elder. Our guest faculty is Dr. Zia Kokoslan, and our co-chair is Dr. Rafael Vega. Thank you all for being part of this discussion. Before we dive into the paper, we will start with a brief introduction. Everybody could please introduce themselves, where they are from, their current title. We'll start with Dr. DeMonte.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Mark DeMonte. I'm a resident at Ohio State University.
1: Welcome. Dr. Elder?
3: Hi, I'm uh, Brad Elder. I'm a professor of neurological surgery and director of neurosurgical oncology at The Ohio State University. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, be on this podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Coughlin.
0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I am um, uh, Ziago Kassan. I am a uh, professor and the chair of the Department of Neurosurgery at Brown University uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, and I specialize in uh, spinal um, tumors. Thank you. And
1: Dr. Vega?
3: Uh, yeah, I'm the uh, assistant professor of uh, neurosurgery here at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, as well as the director of the Brain Tumor Center. And, uh, you know, great choice on article. Looking forward to the discussion. Excellent.
1: Well, thank you all for being here. To begin the discussion, if Dr. DeMonte and or Dr. Elder could please just give us a brief overview of the paper, what was the motivation behind the study, what were the main findings, and what did you conclude?
3: Sure, happy to uh, happy to do that. Uh, so the, the premise for uh, the paper started with um, a paper that we our group published before. We have a great group at Ohio State uh, in terms of a multidisciplinary approach to spine oncology. We work really well with our radiation oncology uh, team and we had looked at uh, uh, local control and and other clinical outcomes in patients treated um, with uh, stereotactic uh, SBRT for uh, spine tumors in conjunction with uh. Surgical resection, decompression of the spine, and stabilization. And during the analysis, we noticed that uh, uh, preoperative arterial embolization of the tumor, on multivariate analysis, uh, predicted improved uh, improvements in those clinical outcome metrics. Uh, but it was a multivariate analysis, not a direct comparison. We we also, you know, during during our literature review, came across um, articles suggesting that preoperative embolization, uh, or excuse me, embolization of uh, spinal metastases without other interventions, without radiation, without surgery led to improved improvements in pain. And so we thought what we would do is we would use the data that we do have to compare directly uh, preoperative embolization of uh, of spinal metastases with surgery and SBRT to uh, patients that only had surgery and SBRT alone to see if any of these Uh, comparisons that we were noted on on multivariate analysis with a different uh, cohort of patients bore out. And so with that in mind, we looked over uh, our cases over an eight-year period, and after uh, filtering out patients that weren't eligible for a variety of reasons, um, settled on a final cohort of 117 patients, uh, of which 47 of whom underwent preoperative embolization, followed by surgery, which was then followed by SBRT, and 70 who underwent surgery and SPRT alone. And uh, the, the main findings uh, were that within the embolization cohort, local control was significantly improved at 14.2 months uh, compared with 6.3 months among the non-embolized cohorts. And uh, variables that you, that you might think of, the uh, different demographic variables and, and radiation techniques were uh, fairly similar between the cohorts. Um, this being a retrospective study, uh, one of the weaknesses was uh, the distribution of of uh, tumor histologies amongst the two different cohorts. i'm I'm guessing we'll get into a little bit of a discussion on that uh, later on. so that's that's sort of the bird's eye view of what we found. We also did find improved uh, pain control consistent with prior publications in this field. So I'll, I'll leave that there and I'll see if Dr. DeMonte has uh, any other comments regarding uh, what, what our paper uh, uh, has brought forward.
2: Thank you, Dr. Elder. That was a, a great summary of the paper. So uh, just to add a couple more points, I think, um, you know, historically speaking, preoperative embolization has been used primarily for uh, mitigation of blood loss in tumors that are hypervascular like renal cell cancers and thyroid cancers. Um, so the the goal here, based on the multivariate analysis that Dr. Elder mentioned from a previous study, was to see if there are some uh, applications of preoperative spinal embolization that we uh, maybe haven't been considering to date, but maybe should start considering in the future. Another uh, interesting point about the data that we uh, collected was when we anau- a- analyzed the uh, degree of embolization for either a uh, uh, sub, uh, subtotal embolization or partial embolization of the spine metastasis compared to uh, what was felt to be a complete embolization of the metastasis, we noticed uh, somewhat of a dose dependent improvement in local control, where if if you met a uh, about an 80% embolization of the metastasis, there was a significant increase in the local control in those patients whereas if less than 80% was achieved, uh, there was really no benefit compared to uh, unembolized patients.
1: Excellent. Well, um, thank you for that summary. I have several questions of my own, but first I'd like to hear from our guest faculty, Dr. Gokoslin. interested in your interpretation of the article and what questions you might have for the authors.
0: Well, uh, th- thank thanks for uh, sharing this excellent work. First of all, I would like to congratulate both Dr. Alder as well as Dr. De uh for an excellent paper. I think this is a, a very interesting contribution to the literature. Uh, we do have some evidence, not necessarily from the metastatic spine uh, work, but uh, from primary spinal column tumors uh, related to giant cell tumor. For example, is a tumor where a repeated embolization uh, can be used as a therapeutic intervention, uh, not just to limit the blood loss during a surgical procedure. And again, in that patient population, we also notice pain improvement if there's successful embolization of the tumor. And so there's definitely uh, evidence in the literature, maybe not uh, directly from the metastatic spinal tumor, but uh, from other types of tumors uh, that afflict the uh, spinal column. Um, the, the I think one of the, um, um, I would say, limitations of the study, I don't think that that necessarily takes anything away from the conclu- conclusions of the study, but uh, of course, uh, the, the tumors that are embolized are typically hypervascular tumors. Uh, those are will be, you know, uh, renal cell carcinoma is the major prototype, and then you have uh, thyroid cancer, which probably is the second most common tumor that we embolize, again, to, to limit the blood loss. Um, uh, given that usually is the case since we have a cluster of patients in the embolized group of those patients. And then uh, on the other side that really did not receive embolization are the tumors, non-small cell C of the lung and GI tract tumors as you have in your series. And and if you compare just uh, uh, those two groups against each other, uh, for example, thyroid cancer patients typically live for many years. Um, And so that... uh, uh, it's a more indolent, more slowly growing tumor. And the same is true with the renal cell carcinoma, at least that they live, you know, any uh, 12 to 14 months after the diagnosis of spinal metastasis. When you look at the lung cancer patient or GI tract patients, they typically die within three, four, five, six months after initial diagnosis. And so um, the, 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 the question really comes down to whether or not one can necessarily attribute the benefit of the local control specifically to the embolization, or whether this is actually the natural history of biological behavior of the tumor? Uh, is that the reason why we are seeing this, uh, the difference? So that is really the question to the authors, and I want to hear their thoughts on that.
3: I think that's an excellent point. I think that's the the most, as you read uh, the, the paper, I think that's one of the most glaring things that jumps out, and it's certainly a weakness associated with the retrospective nature. We weren't didn't plan the study we did do a subgroup analysis uh as as mentioned in the paper of the third of the uh 48 patients um that uh with renal cell carcinoma 12 of whom were not embolized um and it was it's it's admittedly underpowered but showed pretty similar trends in terms of improved uh survival and improved local control that being said the the i think our intent as we're writing the paper and and you know the the is is to really um uh, what we're hoping for is is to push is to use this data and use what we found as an impetus for doing a prospective trial, um, and I and I think that uh, despite the weakness that you point out, I think we do uh, from in my view have enough to proceed with with looking at this prospectively, where we'll get much higher quality data.
0: And I think that the other point perhaps, and I know Dr. DeMonte briefly um, added uh, uh, to the initial presentation regarding the completeness of the embolization. And so it sounds like um, uh, the patients who had more uh, complete embolization, 80 plus percent, uh, they tended to do better than those who had uh, uh, less uh, complete embolization. And I think that, again, potentially speaks to the therapeutic value of the intervention more successful the embolization is the uh, the longer the patients are uh, uh, controlling their disease locally. So that's, that's, I think again, in support of, there's something here that definitely requires some additional uh, investigation. The second question I have, I think you uh, briefly responded to that in your um, uh, presentation, Dr. Alder, is that uh, the, the um, SBRT protocols use uh, patients who, had vascular tumors versus those uh, who had other tumors that did not require embolization. Um, uh, Typically renal cell carcinoma uh, would require a higher dose of uh, radiation. Um, And I don't know if the SBRT protocol is standard for target volumes or uh, treatment volumes uh, for both groups or uh, is there a difference? And, And could that potentially be the driving factor uh, regarding the uh, 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 local control between the two groups.
2: This is another great point, similar to the the first one, and difficult to control for in a uh, retrospective study like this, but we did uh, very meticulously compare the radiation characteristics between the uh, embolized group, which, as you mentioned, is primarily renal cell and thyroid cancers, compared to the uh, unembolized group, which is primarily lung and GI malignancies for example. Um, And and we did not notice any uh, statistical differences, significantly uh, differences between dose, uh, fractionation of therapy, et cetera. And the uh, standard deviations on these variables in particular are quite narrow, suggesting that the the, uh, differences are are fairly minimal between radiation modalities and and, uh, treatment characteristics.
0: Uh, so um, uh, it's great to hear that. I think that sort of uh, at least takes one potential variable off the table, and and so that you can focus on the embolization being the potential driver here. And uh, the, the the third question is uh, the follow up is different between the uh, embolization group versus non embolization group. Uh, I was wondering if this is uh, really uh, by the uh 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 uh, it's, it's, uh due to the fact that. Embolization patients typically live longer, um, uh, compared to non-embolized group. Is that is that the reason why the follow up was different, uh, or was there any other reason why uh, uh, the follow up was shorter in the latter group?
3: Um, yeah, so you know there there could be um, this could be due to a competing risk of uh, death uh, between the two groups. Um, which is why we also compared the uh, cumulative incidence of local failure to control uh, for that competing risk as best as possible. You know, as best as you can do in a in a retrospective study um, with the cumulative incidence of local failure analysis. The observed local control uh, benefit with embolization, though, uh, still held true.
0: Thank you. I think those are the questions that I have. Again, I would like to congratulate uh, the authors, Dr. Demonte and Dr. Elder, uh, for an
1: excellent
3: paper. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you. Um, great. Well, I had a few questions myself, and I'll kind of approach these uh, more from a little different perspective from the um, endovascular side. And you know, for embolization to have an established role here, it obviously needs to have a, a favorable safety profile. And so, I was wondering if there were any adverse events related to the embolization procedure. And particularly if there were any cases of neurologic deterioration between the embolization and the decompression surgery.
2: Yeah, that's a a great question as we, uh, you know, further analyze this uh, preoperative embolization for more than just hypervascular tumors as we currently are using, because obviously we'd be suggesting adding a new procedure that patients aren't currently undergoing uh, in the management of their spine mets. So uh, we did not have any adverse events uh, related to the embolization directly um, in our cohort of patients. Uh, there were no strokes, no uh, significant groin hematomas, et cetera. Um, and we also didn't detect any patients that had uh, any significant change in neurologic function between the uh, embolization and decompression or radiation. Uh, but like I said, you know, certainly something that in prospective study going forward, we would want to very meticulously analyze to make sure that we're not adding any additional risk of, uh, of uh, treatment in these patients.
1: Absolutely. And as a follow-up to that question, what is your typical protocol for taking patients to surgery after embolization? Is surgery performed the next day, or is there sometimes a longer gap between the two procedures?
3: We we typically do surgery the next day um, and our our vascular partners are very good about that. You know, if we're going to do surgery Monday, they'll come in Sunday and and embolize. Sometimes we'll also do same day, uh, just depending on kind of the clinical situation and, and, OR availability, but they're very good at working with us um, on, on streamlining this, whatever we need.
1: And is there any move towards sort of um, standardizing the embolization procedure. I know there was variability into the um, extent of embolization. Um, obviously, there's other variables like uh, bilateral or, or unilateral embolization. Um, has that been refined at all over the, the course of the study period?
3: I don't know. I, th- I mean, I think um, you know when, when we talk to them, because I'll usually get sort of a, a report uh, same day, and they'll send me you know images showing uh, before and after uh just to, to show how much of the vascular supply that they think that they've knocked out um and i think i think they just you know they will my my impression is that they will uh take make every effort to knock out as much of the blood supply as possible and and therefore it it maybe doesn't lend itself to being so standard you know the they'll you know different Right. Uh, different locations may call for different techniques or different. It may take longer, may, may not take as long. Um, you know, they have a uh, they they use particles by and large uh, is, is their preference for for embolization. Um, so, you know, they, I think I think they've settled on and the group here, all of them are, you know, uh, are at least five years. Uh, or 10 into their careers. I think they've kind of settled into what uh, what works for them. So, but but maybe not something that is as rigid a protocol as, as you're asking.
1: Right. And uh, it, it's obviously very difficult to, to standardize that, um, as you kind of alluded to. Um, my next question was related to the pathophysiology of how this actually works, how embolization Enhances lo- local control and what I noticed, as you mentioned, most of the patients in the study were embolized with particles, um, which was a little surprising to me, actually, because particles are resorbed over time and they really only have a, a temporary embolization effect. So, you know, in light of that, how do you explain the long-term control rates and has there been any consideration for switching to a different embolsate, which is um, something more permanent like onyx or nbca
3: on yeah, what i found well I, you know i've talked to our um, some of my vascular partners about that just over time and you know their their preference on particles relates to uh how thoroughly they feel like they can embolize a tumor versus they, they you know they they describe use of onyx as injecting as as a flow uh something akin to lava or it's a much slower flow, uh, and it's uh, they don't feel like that it that it achieves as as uh, thorough of embolization as particles. Um, they also feel that you know if we're seeing um, effects beyond you know the one to two weeks that you that you'd think of as particles being resorbed, those may relate to um, sclerosis of vessels, so that when the particle is gone, the vessel still uh, isn't patent. Um, and but this is me delivering mm-hmm. vascular information second hand so you, you got to take it with a grain of salt but i think maybe mark has something he was maybe he looked into this too
2: yeah so uh, the the primary particle that we used was a uh, pva which my understanding is uh, not a biodegradable particle um and even with the biodegradable particles, I, I think they they tend to stick around at least for, for several weeks. And the majority of our patients were uh, treated surgically and then radiated postoperatively within 40 days of uh, embolization. And so I, I think most of the uh, occlusive nature of the uh, particle would still be present at that time. Uh, regardless, I, I think the, the s- hypothesized synergistic uh, interaction between the radiation and embolization that we feel uh, might be at play here is something that would be uh, initiated kind of almost immediately after the the delivery of radiation because our thoughts are you know the radiation in particular induces a uh, ceramide apoptotic pathway that results in uh, microvascular injury and uh, the embolic nature of the the embolism uh, it, it kind of Further exacerbates that occlusiveness and uh, should result in the long-term local control. Not necessarily that the particle is present for a long period of time and continuously causing this damage.
1: Right. Uh, that makes sense. That's uh, that's interesting that they they sort of have a synergistic effect. Um, and that kind of leads into uh, my third question, which is. Um, do you think the, the benefits of neoadjuvant embolization can be generalized patients um, outside of the ones in the embolization arm of your study? For example, um, do you plan to extend embolization to other histologies such as lung or breast? And um, do you think your, your findings could be extrapolated to patients not receiving adjuvant SBRT?
2: Yeah, so I, I would say based on the fact that this is a uh, retrospective study, obviously, you know, they're, they're not generalizable conclusions, but as more of a proof of concept of the uh, utilization of embolization in a, a unique fashion, we are conducting a, a prospective analysis currently where we have uh we plan on taking surgery off the table in these patients in the beginning, um, and only comparing patients that we feel like don't require surgery prior to radiation in order to mitigate that need of, you know, uh, uh, somebody with a neurologic deficit or a compressive tumor that uh, wouldn't tolerate radiation without separation first. And so by doing this, we can treat uh, we can consider all uh, solid tumor malignancies. Um, and, and treat them with radiation plus or minus um, embolization uh, prior to radiation. I, I think from that analysis, we should have a, a better understanding of this if this is a, a generalizable uh, treatment to, to tumors that are not typically radiated or uh, embolized.
1: Great. Well, um, that that sounds really interesting, and looking forward to, to hearing about those results. Um, those are my questions, um, Dr. Demonte or Dr. Elder. Was there anything else uh, that you wanted to add about the study before we break? Uh,
3: no, I think you know. I think um, we were uh, we were encouraged by our results. I think we have a pretty good understanding, uh, and I and I think your this podcast, um, you know, has helped to articulate it very well of the of the limitations of the study as well um and uh, you know I th- we're very eager we've we've gotten going with our prospective uh study we've got a you know uh, uh you know hopefully we'll be able to you know accrue patients and and, uh, and address some of the the finer points uh that were the limitations of the retrospective study but i think we're we're cautiously optimistic that we're we're uh, gonna see some good results that would potentially help the patients and you know as as, as time goes on, you know, the, and, and, you know, we're, we're seeing seemingly uh, higher rates of, of spine metastasis, uh, and so I, I think this, you know, could potentially play a, a greater role in the neurosurgical care of patients with this, you know, unfortunate sequelae of cancer.
1: Absolutely. Um, great. Well, that concludes the CNS journal podcast. I want to thank our guests, Dr. DeMonte, Dr. Elder, Dr. Gokaslan, and Dr. Vega. And once again, congratulate the authors again on an outstanding, thought-provoking article. I'm really uh, interested to uh, read about the future, um, your future studies and your follow-up work. Um, I want to remind the listeners that this podcast is worth 1.5 CMEs, which is available to claim through the CNS. Online education catalog and is complimentary to CNS
3: members. Thank you.